fairy lights for fairy nights. It's time for your bedtime story. Brought to you by me, the Suze. Also brought to you by me, Zelda. Put your PJs on and sit down for a soothing bedtime story. It's not just the devil in the details. What else is lurking? Fairy lights for fairy nights. Good evening, fairy lights for fairy nights. We're here to send you off to bedtime land. Hello. How was your evening? It's too early for my bedtime. Oh, yeah, totally. You don't go to bed for hours. It's like afternoon for me. Yeah. Well, our uh, co- my co-host Zelda is out doing some uh, political punditry. I don't know if that's the word. I don't have any idea. Campaigning, um, I think, probably would be the... Campaigning, yeah. That would be better. Um... So she's busy, so Ken's sitting in for me. Thank you, Kenny Pick. Garsh, it's nothing. Oh, I appreciate you. And I appreciate you. Yes. So, this we're going to... This shows about appreciation. Appreciation, it's a good thing. <laughs> we're going to um, play you some bedtime stories. The first one being about clocks. Very interesting. A wonder clock. A wonder clock. The wunderkind of like... the Glockenspiel. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is, um, uh, so it's a clock of wonder. Now, yeah. is is this, um, is this a precursor to a time travel story? Could it be? Is it a clock? I doubt it. If, if it's a clock and you stop it, does all time stand still? Is it? I don't know. I hope so. Is it a so. clock you look at and you wonder what time it is because it has no hands? The wonder clock. There you go. Is it a clock that grows out of a tree? Like in the magicians? Yeah. Is it a clock that's made out of wonder bread? Yeah. Or is it Wonder Woman's little uh, mechanical sidekick? Wonder clock. <laughs> wonder clock. That There's could be fun. so many possibilities with the wonder clock. And you heard it here first. But right. it has nothing to do with Oasis and Wonderwall. Oh. I don't like Oasis. Yeah, there's overrated and then there's them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I like It's true. I liked Oasis uh I liked the original band Oasis was the Beatles. Yeah. Um, I do too. So. But uh, yeah, so uh, so this is uh, comes to us from LibriVox. I did not get to check this audio, so it's probably going to be quiet. Um, it might be. I don't know. Uh, but it says Pile King Stork uh, after Wonder Clock. Oh, know you know what? Wonder Clock is just the name of the book. Oh, now it's see? It's the name of the King Stork. Yeah, Wonder Clock is just the name of the book, the general book. And then it's about storks because... <sighs> I'm into storks because because mm, they bring babies. Yeah, I like storks in fairy tales. Okay. And folk tales. So scratch all that speculative uh, nonsense on what Wonder Clock is. It's just the name of a book. So forget it. No, that's okay. What do I know? We won't forget about it. 
But, um, uh, well, okay. Well, I guess uh, this is about uh, the king's stork. Uh, the pile yeah, king, the king's pile, stork. King's stork. Okay. It's uh, 20 minutes. Yeah. Let's go. go. Let's find out more. So far, there's nothing. <laughs> is it a zero zero time? Or no, it there it is. There, it takes ten seconds. Recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellie Cat. The Wonder Clock by Howard Pyle. Eleven o'clock. Who goes about the house when all are sleeping but the clock? and no one hears it all alone, still saying tick-a-tock. It is not Gretchen goes about, she's snoring in her bed. It's not the hound that goes about, he never lifts his head. It is the wind that goes about, and sighs around the house, and never wakes the toothless hound, or stops the gnawing mouse. Chapter 23 King Stork There was a drummer marching along the high road. Forward march, left, right. Tramp, 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 for the fighting was done, and he was coming home from the wars. By and by he came to a great wide stream of water, and there sat an old man as gnarled and as bent as the hoops in a cooper shop. "'Are you going to cross the water?' said he. "'Yes,' says the drummer. "'I am going to do that if my legs hold out to carry me.' "'And will you not help a poor body across?' says the old man. Now the drummer was as good-natured a lad as ever stood on two legs. If the young never gave a lift to the old, says he to himself, the wide world would not be worth while living in. So he took off his shoes and stockings, and then he bent his back and took the old man on it, and away he started through the water. Splash! But this was no common old man whom the drummer was carrying, and he was not long finding that out, for the further he went in the water the heavier grew his load like work put off until to-morrow, so that when he was half-way across, his legs shook under him, and the sweat stood on his forehead like a string of beads in the shop-window. But by and by he reached the other shore, and the old man jumped down from his back. "'Phew!' says the drummer. "'I am glad to be here at last.' And now for the wonder of all this. The old man was an old man no longer, but a splendid tall fellow with hair as yellow as gold. "'And who do you think I am?' said he. But of that the drummer knew no more than the mouse in the haystack, so he shook his head and said nothing. "'I'm the king of the storks, and here I have sat for many days, for the wicked one-eyed witch who lives on the glass hill put it upon me for a spell that I should be an old man until somebody should carry me over the water. You are the first to do that, and you shall not lose by it. Here is a little bone whistle.' Whenever you are in trouble, just blow a turn or two on it, and I will be by to help you. Thereupon King Stork drew a feather cap out of his pocket, and clapped it on his head, and away he flew, for he was turned into a great, long, red-legged stork as quick as a wink. But the drummer trudged on the way he was going, as merry as a cricket, for it is not everybody who cracks his shins against such luck as he had stumbled over, I can tell you. By and by he came to the town over the hill, and there he found great bills stuck up over the walls. They were all of them proclamations, and this is what they said. The princess of that town was as clever as she was pretty. 
that was saying a great deal, for she was the handsomest in the whole world. Phew, but that is a fine lass for sure and certain, said the drummer. So it was proclaimed that any lad who could answer a question the princess would ask, and would ask a question the princess could not answer, and would catch the bird that she would be wanting, should have her for his wife and half the kingdom to boot. Hi, but here is luck for a clever lad, says the drummer. But whoever should fail in any one of the three tasks should have his head chopped off as sure as he lived. Ho, oh, but she is a wicked one for all that, says the drummer. That was what the proclamation said, and the drummer would have a try for her. For, said he, it is a poor fellow who cannot manage a wife when he has her, and he knew as much about that business as a goose about churning butter. As for chopping off heads, he never bothered his own about that, for if one never goes out for fear of rain, one never catches fish. Off he went to the king's castle as fast as he could step, and there he knocked on the door as bold as though his own grandmother lived there. But when the king heard what the drummer had come for, he took out his pocket-handkerchief and began to wipe his eyes, for he had a soft heart under his jacket, and it made him cry like anything to see another coming to have his head chopped off, as so many had done before him. For there they were, all along the wall in front of the princess's window, like so many apples. But the drummer was not to be scared away by the king's crying a bit, so in he came, and by and by they all sat down to supper, he and the king and the princess. As for the princess, she was so pretty that the drummer's heart melted inside of him, like a lump of butter on the stove, and that was what she was after. After a while she asked him if he had come to answer a question of hers, and to ask her a question of his, and to catch the bird that she should set him to catch. Yes, said the drummer, I have come to do that very thing, and he spoke as boldly and as loudly as the clerk in church. Very well, then, says the princess, as sweet as sugar candy, just come along to-morrow, and I will ask you your question. Off went the drummer. He put his whistle to his lips, and blew a turn or two, and there stood King Stork, and nobody knows where he stepped from. "'And what do you want?' says he. The drummer told him everything, and how the princess was going to ask him a question to-morrow morning that he would have to answer, or have his head chopped off. "'Here you have walked into a pretty puddle, and with your eyes open,' says King Stork, for he knew that the princess was a wicked enchantress, and loved nothing so much as to give a lad into just such a scrape as the drummer had tumbled into. "'But see, here is a little cap and a long feather. The cap is a dark cap.' and when you put it on your head one can see you no more than so much thin air. At twelve o'clock at night the princess will come out into the castle garden, and will fly away through the air. Then throw your leg over the feather, and it will carry you wherever you want to go, and if the princess flies fast it will carry you as fast and faster. Dong! Dong! The clock struck twelve, and the princess came out of her house, but in the garden was the drummer waiting for her with a dark cap on his head, and he saw her as plain as a pike-staff. She brought a pair of great wings which she fastened to her shoulders, and away she flew. But the drummer was as quick with his tricks as she was with hers. He flung his leg over the feather which King Stork had given him, and away he flew after her, and just as fast as she with her great wings. By and by they came to a huge castle of shining steel that stood on a mountain of glass and it was a good thing for the drummer that he had on his cap of darkness, for all around the outside of the castle stood fiery dragons and savage lions to keep anybody from going in without leave. But not a thread of the drummer did they see, 
in he walked with the princess, and there was a great one-eyed witch with a beard on her chin, and a nose that hooked over her mouth like the beak of a parrot. Uff, said she, here is a smell of Christian blood in the house. Tut, mother, says the princess, how you talk, do you not see that there is nobody with me? For the drummer had taken care that the wind should not blow the cap of darkness off his head, I can tell you. By and by they sat down to supper, the princess and the witch, but it was little the princess ate, for as fast as anything was put on her plate the drummer helped himself to it, so that it was all gone before she could get a bite. Look, mother, she said, I eat nothing, and yet it all goes from my plate. Why is that so? But that the old witch could not tell her, for she could see nothing of the drummer. There was a lad came to-day to answer the question I shall put to him, said the princess. Now what shall I ask him by way of a question? I have a tooth in the back part of my head, said the witch, and it has been grumbling a bit. Ask him what it is you are thinking about, and let it be that. Yes, that was a good question for sure and certain, and the princess would give it to the drummer to-morrow to see what he had to say for himself. As for the drummer, you can guess how he grinned, for he heard every word that they said. After a while the princess flew away from home again, for it was nearly the break of day, and she must be back before the sun rose. And the drummer flew close behind her, but she knew nothing of that. The next morning he marched to the king's castle, and knocked at the door, and they let him in. There sat the king and the princess, and lots of folks besides. Well, had he come to answer her question? That was what the princess wanted to know. Yes, that was the very business he had come about. Very well, this was the question, and he might have three guesses at it. What was she thinking of at that minute? Oh, it could be no hard thing to answer such a question as that, for lasses' heads all ran upon the same things, more or less. Was it a fine silk dress with glass buttons down the front she was thinking of now? No, it was not that. Then was it of a good stout lad like himself for a sweetheart that she was thinking of? No, it was not that. No? Then it was the bad tooth that had been grumbling in the head of the one-eyed witch for a day or two past, perhaps. Dear, dear! But you should have seen the princess's face when she heard this. Up she got, and off she packed without a single word, and the king saw without the help of his spectacles that the drummer had guessed right. He was so glad that he jumped up and down and snapped his fingers for joy. Besides that, he gave out that bonfires should be lighted all over the town, and that was a fine thing for the little boys. The next night the princess flew away to the house of the one-eyed witch again, but there was the drummer close behind her just as he had been before. Uff, said the one-eyed witch, here is a smell of Christian blood for sure and certain. But all the same she saw no more of the drummer than if he had never been born. See, mother, said the princess, that rogue of a drummer answered my question without winking over it. So, said the old witch, we have missed for once, but the second time hits the mark. He will be asking you a question to-morrow, and here is a book that tells everything that has happened in the world, and if he asks you more than that, he is a smart one and no mistake. After that they sat down to supper again, but it was little the princess ate, for the drummer helped himself out of her plate just as he had done before. After a while the princess flew away home, and the drummer with her. And now what will we ask her that she cannot answer, said the drummer. So off he went back of the house, and blew a turn or two on his whistle, and there stood King Stork. And what will we ask the princess, said he, when she has a book that tells her everything? 
King Stork was not long in telling him that. Just ask her so-and-so, and so-and-so, so, said he, and she would not dare to answer the question. Well, the next morning there was the drummer at the castle all in good time, and had he come to ask her a question? That was what the princess wanted to know. Oh, yes, he had come for that very thing. Well, then just let him begin, for the princess was ready and waiting, and she wet her thumb and began to turn over the leaves of her book of knowledge. Oh, but it was an easy question the drummer was going to ask, and it needed no big book like that to answer it. The other night he dreamed that he was in a castle all built of shining steel, where there lived a witch with one eye. There was a handsome bit of a lass there who was as great a witch as the old woman herself, but for the life of him he could not tell who she was. Now perhaps the princess could make a guess at it. There the drummer had her as tight as a fly in a bottle, for she did not dare to let folks know that she was a wicked witch like the one-eyed one, so all she could do was sit there and gnaw her lip. As for the book of knowledge, it was no more use to her than a fifth wheel under a cart. But if the king was glad when the drummer answered the princess's question, he was twice as glad when he found she could not answer his. All the same, there is more to do yet, and many a slip betwixt the cup and the lip. The bird I want is a one-eyed raven, said the princess. Now bring her to me if you want to keep your head off the wall yonder. Yes, the drummer thought he might do that as well as another thing. So off he went back of the house to talk to King Stork of the matter. Look, said King Stork and he drew a net out of his pocket as fine as a cobweb and as white as milk. Take this with you when you go with the princess to the one-eyed witch's house tonight. Throw it over the witch's head, and then see what will happen. Only when you catch the one-eyed raven, you are to wring her neck as soon as you lay hands on her, for if you don't it will be the worse for you. Well, that night off flew the princess just as she had done before, and off flew the drummer at her heels, until they came to the witch's house, both of them. "'And did you take his head this time?' said the witch. "'No, the princess had not done that, for the drummer had asked such and such a question, and she could not answer it. "'All the same, she had him tight enough now, for she had set it as a task upon him that he should bring her the one-eyed raven, and it was not likely he would be up to doing that. "'After that the princess and the one-eyed witch sat down to supper together, and the drummer served the princess the same trick that he had done before, so that she got hardly a bite to eat.' See, said the old witch, when the princess was ready to go, I will go home with you to-night, and see that you get there safe and sound. So she brought out a pair of wings, just like those the princess had, and set them on her shoulders, and away both of them flew with the drummer behind. So they came home without seeing a soul, for the drummer kept his cap of darkness tight upon his head all the while. Good night, said the witch to the princess, and good night, said the princess to the witch, for the one was for going one way, and the other the other but the drummer had his wits about him sharply enough, and before the old witch could get away he flung the net that King Stork had given him over her head. Hi, but you should have been there to see what happened, for it was a great one-eyed raven, as black as the inside of the chimney, that he had in his net. Dear, dear, how it flapped its wings and struck with its great beak! But that did no good, for the drummer just wrung its neck, and there was an end of it. The next morning he wrapped it up in his pocket-handkerchief, and off he started for the king's castle, and there was the princess waiting for him, looking as cool as butter in the well, for she felt sure the drummer was caught in the trap this time. "'And have you brought the one-eyed raven with you?' she said. "'Oh, yes,' said the drummer, and here it was wrapped up in this handkerchief. 
but when the princess saw the raven with its neck wrung, she gave a great shriek and fell to the floor. There she lay, and they had to pick her up and carry her out of the room. But everybody saw that the drummer had brought the bird she had asked for, and all were glad as glad could be. The king gave orders that they should fire off the town cannon, just as they did on his birthday, and all the little boys out in the street flung up their hats and caps and cried, Hurrah! Hurrah! But the drummer went back of the house. He blew a turn or two on his whistle, and there stood King Stork. "'Here is your dark cap and your feather,' says he, "'and it is I who am thankful to you, for they have won me a real princess for a wife.' "'Yes, good,' says King Stork. "'You have won her sure enough, but the next thing is to keep her, "'for a lass is not cured of being a witch as quickly as you seem to think, "'and after one has found one's eggs, one must roast them and butter them into the bargain.' See now, the princess is just as wicked as ever she was before, and if you do not keep your eyes open she will trip you up after all. So listen to what I tell you. Just after you are married, get a great bowl of fresh milk and a good stiff switch. Pour the milk over the princess when you are alone together, and after that hold tight to her and lay on the switch no matter what happens, for that is the only way to save yourself and to save her. Well, the drummer promised to do as King Stork told him, and by and by came the wedding day. Off he went, over to the dairy to get a fresh pan of milk, and out he went into the woods and cut a stout hazel switch, as thick as his finger. As soon as he and the princess were alone together, he emptied the milk all over her, then he caught hold of her and began laying on the switch for dear life. It was well for him that he was a brave fellow, and had been to the wars, for, instead of the princess, he held a great black cat that glared at him with her fiery eyes, and growled and spat like anything. But that did no good, for the drummer just shut his eyes and laid on the switch harder than ever. Then, puff, instead of a black cat it was like a great savage wolf that snarled and snapped at the drummer with its red jaws, but the drummer just held fast and made the switch fly, and the wolf scared him no more than the black cat had done. So out it went, like the light of a candle, and there was a great snake that lashed its tail, and shot out its forked tongue and spat fire. But no, the drummer was no more frightened at that than he had been at the wolf and the cat, and, dear, dear, how he dressed the snake with his hazel switch. Last of all there stood the princess herself. "'Oh, dear husband!' she cried. "'Let me go, and I will promise to be good all the days of my life.' "'Very well,' says the drummer and that is the tune I like to hear. That was the way he gained the best of her, whether it was the bowl of milk or the hazel switch, for afterward she was as good a wife as ever churned butter. But what did it is a question that you will have to answer for yourself. All the same she tried no more of her tricks with him, I can tell you. And so the story comes to an end, like everything else in the world. End of chapter 23 The King's Stork Recording by Ellie Cat. Wow. Weird. Yep, that was a wide variety of animals. Well, that one would have put me to sleep. I was more I, I was more disturbed by what seemed to be um a, a, a very thinly veiled attack at Judaism in there. You think so? I didn't catch that. Well, where was the, that? Well, they started describing the one-eyed witch with the beard and a giant hook nose, 
And oh. and then and then they were like and she was like, I smell Christians, you know. So oh. so the, it's like and and you know, most folks know that you know, witchcraft for centuries was Judaism. You know, yeah. it's it's like Christians are like, Okay, we're gonna steal your religion and we're gonna add yeah. to it and then we're gonna turn you into monsters. Sound good? <laughs> You know. Yeah. Well, see, when I hear one-eyed raven, I think Odin. So I would think they're demonizing, um, you know, Norse well, mythology and and the well, worship of Odin. It was when they just, you know, I mean, when when I hear when I hear hook nose to in, to describe a witch, it, it's it, it, they're talking about a Jewish person. They're 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 demonizing Jewish yeah. people. Yeah. So and it could be. But that drummer, he was unfazed in the end. Hmm. Um, well, if you beat a woman long enough, she'll be a faithful wife. Sure, just dump milk all over and lay on a switch really hard. Uh, Get the stiffest switch you can in a pail of milk, baby. And she'll turn into a black cat, a wolf, and a snake. Yeah. But I held a, a spitting black cat once. It was cute. Uh, last night. Yes. So <laughs> July's a rose, um, yeah. but yeah, you know it. It was interesting, but you know it was. It, it's it seemed it, it that seemed like, you know, I bet you if you went through the rest of the Wonder Clock, you're gonna find a lot of other things where it's like you know anti Judaism. There's yeah. that witch with the hook nose, you know. I mean because that that's such a stereotype, you yeah. know. I mean you know they. They'll say, you know, if if they're not, if it's not a blatant attack, they'll say, you know, we've just got a ward on her nose or anything. But you know, if you look at the villains that Disney did for decades, it's like, you know, yeah. Hey, they have giant hook noses. Whoa, where were all those? And then you know, if you look at Nazi propaganda drawings of Jews, they all have giant mm -hmm. hook noses. So it's it's um it's a thing. Well, I I'm pretty sure the Wonder Clock was a German collection, so. Oh, the Wunderklock. The Wunderklock. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, Wunderkind. Yeah. Wunderklock. They they like wonder as an as a um Yeah. A prefix. Sort sure. Of? Whatever. Um Yeah. But yeah, so that that kind of you know, it was it I, it was going good for a while, but then I'm like, all right. Yeah. I'm a little turned off now. Yeah, it was going good for a while with the mountain of glass and the fiery yeah. dragons and the lions. Yeah, that was fun. I liked that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So um, let me see. Uh, here, I'll clean a couple things out for you. I got some stuff here I can wipe out of mine. <coughs> um, Excuse me. We could go okay. on to Oz if you want. Well, we forgot to play the marvelous land of Oz part eight. That was, uh, um, I can't, I don't know what the word is. Our, uh, Gen Ginger's Army of Revolt? Yeah, General Ginger's Army of oh, Revolt. Oh, okay, General Ginger's. I don't, I didn't know the character. I put my apologies. Yeah. So. She is, uh, this is a, a fascinating character, but there, that's the only one. That's the earliest one. Um, that's the that's the one in orange that we didn't get to play last week. So uh, it is number eight. I'm I don't see number nine, but I can probably 
Oh, it's it's there, but there's no number seven. Oh, there it I'm is. Saying. Yeah, I I wiped out number seven last uh, okay. Tuesday because, or no, I'm sorry, last Thursday. Thank you, Adam, for for putting some content on. Uh, we had something come up and we had to leave town, so Adam uh, did some mythology stuff uh, in yep. the vein of fairy tales. So that was nice to yeah. get him back on air. Uh, but yeah, so um, marvelous land of Oz, part eight. Let's do it. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Marvelous Land of Oz by L. Frank Baum Chapter 8 General Ginger's Army of Revolt Tip was so anxious to rejoin his man Jack and the sawhorse that he walked a whole half the distance to the Emerald City without stopping to rest. Then he discovered that he was hungry, and the crackers and cheese he had provided for the journey had all been eaten. While wondering what he should do in this emergency, he came upon a girl sitting by the roadside. She wore a costume that struck the boy as being remarkably brilliant her silken waist being of emerald green and her skirt of four distinct colors, blue in front, yellow at the left side, red at the back, and purple at the right side. Fastening the waist in front were four buttons, the top one blue, the next yellow, a third red, and the last purple. The splendor of this dress was almost barbaric, so Tip was fully justified in staring at the gown for some moments before his eyes were attracted by the pretty face above it. Yes, the face was pretty enough, he decided, but it wore an expression of discontent coupled to a shade of defiance or audacity. While the boy stared, the girl looked upon him calmly. A lunch-basket stood beside her, and she held a dainty sandwich in one hand and a hard-boiled egg in the other eating with an evident appetite that aroused Tip's sympathy. He was just about to ask a share of the luncheon when the girl stood up and brushed the crumbs from her lap. There, she said, it is time for me to go. Carry that basket for me and help yourself to its contents if you are hungry. Tip seized the basket eagerly and began to eat, following for a time the strange girl without bothering to ask questions. She walked along before him with swift strides, and there was about her an air of decision and importance that led him to suspect she was some great personage. Finally, when he had satisfied his hunger, he ran up beside her and tried to keep pace with her swift footsteps, a very difficult feat, for she was much taller than he, and evidently in a hurry. "'Thank you very much for the sandwiches,' said Tip as he trotted along. "'May I ask your name?' "'I am General Ginger,' was the brief reply. "'Oh,' said the boy, surprised. "'What sort of a general?' "'I command an army of revolt in this war,' answered the general with unnecessary sharpness. "'Oh,' he again exclaimed, "'I didn't know there was a war.' "'You're not supposed to know it,' she returned, "'for we have kept it a secret, "'and considering that our army is composed entirely of girls,' "'she added with some pride,' It is surely a remarkable thing that our revolt is not yet discovered. It is indeed, 
acknowledged Tip. But where is your army? About a mile from here, said General Ginger. The forces have assembled from all parts of the land of Oz, at my express command, for this is the day we are to conquer His Majesty the Scarecrow and wrest from him the throne. The army of revolt only awaits my coming to march upon the Emerald City. Well, declared Tip, drawing a long breath, this is certainly a surprising thing. May I ask why you wish to conquer His Majesty the Scarecrow? Because the Emerald City has been ruled by men long enough for one reason, said the girl. Moreover, the city glitters with beautiful gems, which might far better be used for rings, bracelets, and necklaces. And there is enough money in the king's treasury to buy every girl in our army a dozen new gowns. So we intend to conquer the city and run the government to suit ourselves. Ginger spoke these words with an eagerness and decision that proved she was in earnest. But war is a terrible thing, said Tip thoughtfully. This war will be pleasant, replied the girl cheerfully. Many of you will be slain, continued the boy in an odd voice. Oh, no, said Ginger. What man would oppose a girl or dare to harm her? And there is not an ugly face in my entire army. Perhaps you're right, he said. But the guardian of the gate is considered a faithful guardian, and the king's army will not let the city be conquered without a struggle. The army is old and feeble, replied General Ginger scornfully. His strength has all been used to grow whiskers. And his wife has such a temper that she has already pulled more than half of them out by the roots. When the wonderful wizard reigned, the soldier with the green whiskers was a very good royal army, for people feared the wizard. But no one is afraid of the scarecrow, so his royal army doesn't account for much in time of war. After this conversation, they proceeded some distance in silence, and before long reached a large clearing in the forest where fully four hundred young women were assembled. These were laughing and talking together as gaily as if they had gathered for a picnic instead of a war of conquest. They were divided into four companies, and Tip noticed that all were dressed in costumes similar to that worn by General Ginger. The only real difference was that while those girls from the Munchkin country had the blue stripe in the front of their skirts, those from the country of the Quadlings had the red stripe in front, and those from the country of the Winkies had the yellow stripe in front, and the Gillikin girls wore the purple stripe in front. All had green waistcoats representing the Emerald City they intended to conquer, and the top button on each waist indicated by its color which country the wearer came from. The uniforms were jaunty and becoming, and quite effective when massed together. Tip thought this strange army bore no weapons whatever, but in this he was wrong for each girl had stuck through the knot of her back hair two long, glittering knitting needles. General Ginger immediately mounted the stump of a tree and addressed her army. Friends, fellow citizens and girls, she said, we are about to begin our great revolt against the men of Oz. We march to conquer the Emerald City, to dethrone the Scarecrow King, to acquire thousands of gorgeous gems, to rifle the royal treasury, and to obtain power over our former oppressors. Hooray! said those that had listened, but Tip thought most of the army was too much engaged in chattering to pay attention to the words of the general. The command to march was now given, and the girls formed themselves into four bands or companies and set off with eager strides toward the Emerald City. The boy followed after them, carrying several baskets and wraps and packages 
which various members of the army of revolt had placed in his care. It was not long before they came to the green granite walls of the city and halted before the gateway. The guardian of the gate at once came out and looked at them curiously as if a circus had come to town. He carried a bunch of keys swung round his neck by a golden chain. His hands were thrust carelessly into his pockets, and he seemed to have no idea at all that the city was threatened by rebels. Speaking pleasantly to the girls, he said, "'Good morning, my dears. What can I do for you?' "'Surrender instantly!' answered General Ginger, standing before him and frowning as terribly as her pretty face would allow her to. "'Surrender!' echoed the man, astounded. "'Why, it's impossible. It's against the law. I never heard of such a thing in my life.' "'Still, you must surrender!' exclaimed the general fiercely. "'We are revolting!' "'You don't look it!' said the guardian, gazing from one to another admiringly. "'But we are!' cried Ginger, stamping her foot impatiently. "'And we mean to conquer the Emerald City!' "'Good gracious!' returned the surprised guardian of the gates. "'What a nonsensical idea! "'Go home to your mothers, my good girls, "'and milk the cows and bake the bread. "'Don't you know it's a dangerous thing to conquer a city?' "'We're not afraid!' responded the general, "'and she looked so determined that it made the guardian uneasy. "'So he rang the bell for the soldier with the green whiskers, "'and the next minute was sorry he had done so, "'for immediately he was surrounded by a crowd of girls "'who drew the knitting needles from their hair "'and began jabbing them at the guardian "'with the sharp points dangerously near his fat cheeks and blinking eyes. "'The poor man howled loudly for mercy "'and made no resistance when Ginger "'drew the bunch of keys from around his neck. "'Followed by her army, the general now rushed to the gate where she was confronted by the royal army of Oz, which was the other name for the soldier with the green whiskers. Halt! he cried, and pointed his long gun full in the face of the leader. Some of the girls screamed and ran back, but General Ginger bravely stood her ground and said reproachfully, Why, how now, would you shoot a poor defenseless girl? No, replied the guard, for my gun isn't loaded. Not loaded? Now, for fear of accidents, and I've forgotten where I hid the powder and shot to load it with. But if you'll wait a short time, I'll try to hunt them up. Don't trouble yourself, said Ginger cheerfully. Then she turned to her army and cried, Girls, the gun isn't loaded! Hooray! shrieked the rebels, delighted at this good news. And they proceeded to rush upon the soldier with the green whiskers in such a crowd that it was a wonder they didn't stick the knitting needles into one another. But the royal army of Oz was too much afraid of women to meet the onslaught. He simply turned about and ran with all his might through the gate and toward the royal palace, while General Ginger and her mob flocked into the unprotected city. In this way was the Emerald City captured without a drop of blood being spilled. The army of revolt had become an army of conquerors. End chapter 8 There we go. The Emerald City has been captured. Yes. A General Ginger. Yep. Is there a That's Sergeant the... Is there a Sergeant Marianne? Oh. No. <laughs> this is way before that. 
I know I'm being silly, <laughs> but I did. I am in the chat room, and I, I I'm posting gifts there, but I haven't seen you uh, react to anything. I posted a guy with green whiskers. Ah, there you go. I so, see your guy with green whiskers. There you go. And I add a reaction of, "Wow, that's neat." Okay, cool. Hmm. I just wanted okay. to make sure you were seeing all of our fun comment conversation. You're right. Yeah. So. I know sometimes yep. Discord confounds you. Yeah, it does. Sometimes I forget which way, which place to be in. But yeah, I find that interesting that um, the the women's armory of four hundred took over the Emerald City because the soldiers of the other army were afraid of women. Hmm. So they okay. were Republicans. Yeah, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I think they were just afraid of women. So. Oh, there we go. Whole army of HP Lovecrafts. So, <laughs> uh, then he went on to drive himself mad thinking about their <laughs> lady parts. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, speaking of turning people into monsters, that's what Lovecraft did with female genitalia. So. <laughs> well. Uh, George O'Keefe ain't got nothing married? on him. Yes. Was he his, ever married? His wife referred to him as an adequate lover. <laughs> an adequate lover. Uh, yeah, he was married uh, later in life, and it was uh, it was just weird. So. so he did it. He just didn't like it. He um he tried it perhaps once. Ah, <laughs> uh, goodness. Yeah, I forget what the exact quote is, but she said something like he was in. He was an adequate lover, or something. You know, uh, you know, something just like, just like he was there. <laughs> you know, he was there. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about Oz. You don't have to deal with those uh, deep and terrible, psychologically scarring things. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about it. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of. Lighthearted and sweet, and uh... well, no, I, I like that a lot. I, I like the idea of uh, the the all girl army, um, and in saying, what did she say about the war? What was it going to be? It was going to be magnificent. Some of you may uh, die, but it will be fun. <laughs> she, she said, the the war will be pleasant. The yeah. war will be pleasant because women are involved, and well, they're not armed; they just have knitting needles. But oh, I think I remember that too. I think you, I, I think you told me a, a lot. You might have read me some of these one time. Yeah, probably. Um, so, so but yeah, she said that they, that they would defeat the uh, army of Oz because their strength was used to grow green whiskers. <laughs> wow. Yes, their strength was used to grow those green whiskers. Oh, so that's it. That's all he had, and uh, there were 400 people in the uh, all-girl army, mm -hmm. and they were all dressed very well, and uh, each they had 100 each people from each country uh, in Oz, which is the uh, Gillikin, the Munchkin, the Winky, mm -hmm. and I forgot the other country, the Red Bo Country. Bosnia. Yeah, Bosnia. <laughs> and they were armed with knitting needles in their hair. So, Well, you know, you got to have some place to put them if, you know, they'd, yeah. they'd, they'd slip right through a holster. 
They would. They would. So, and that's a that's a but, um, you know very Amazonian you know pra- a practical way to carry them. But it seems like Tip was back in the story. I missed the beginning because I was running around looking for my book. But Tip was wearing a dress. Mm-hmm. Not sure how that happened. Um, it was the style. But it seems at the time. like what? It was the style at the time. It was the style at the time. Um, Tip was involved in the revolt. I'm not sure completely, but uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe There's more the information uniform. later. Maybe it was the required. Uh, maybe it was the required uniform of General Ginger and her battalion. Yeah, that wouldn't stand a reason. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't think I uh, touched up. Uh, I'm not sure if I amplified the other chapters of that or not. But uh, we could uh, we could do something else for a bit. Oh, I went to get the Green News report. Oh um, yeah, and no go. Their page was covered with whiskers. No, um, <laughs> sorry, it was that caught uh, me unaware. There was something. There's something wrong with their their coding, and I couldn't get the file. There, it, oh. I, I don't know if it was just me, but. I went to the Green News Report and I couldn't get anything to load up properly. No files were displayed. That's fine. It's not so, your fault. I, yeah. Everyone loves the Green News Report when you're in the Emerald City, but at the same time, that's okay. If we can't do it, we yeah. can't do it. Yeah. So just yeah. just spend your energy going growing green whiskers and get your ass <laughs> kicked and get your ass kicked by General Ginger and her army. Yeah. And uh, maybe later on in the show. I would like to um, do more, another chapter, because that's quite a cliffhanger, you know? Well, we could just go quite ahead and do the other one right cliff- now. I have nine right here, if you want to If you want to continue. Let's just do it. It's, uh, we've, All right. We've got, we've got time before. If you're, you're interested, too, because I'm interested always in yeah. Oz and no, the Emerald fine. City and all that. Well, but, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how loud it will be. Hopefully, everybody can hear it all right. But uh, here we go. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Marvelous Land of Oz by L. Frank Baum. Chapter 9 The Scarecrow plans and escape. Tip slipped away from the girls and followed swiftly after the soldier with the green whiskers. The invading army entered the city more slowly, for they stopped to dig emeralds out of the walls and paving stones with the points of their knitting needles. So the soldier and the boy reached the palace before the news had spread that the city was conquered. The Scarecrow and Jack Pumpkinhead were still playing at quoits in the courtyard when the game was interrupted by the abrupt entrance of the Royal Army of Oz, who came flying in without his hat or gun. His clothes in sad disarray, and his long beard floating a yard behind him as he ran. "'Tally one for me,' said the Scarecrow calmly. "'What's wrong, my man?' he added, addressing the soldier." "'Oh, your majesty, your majesty, the city is conquered!' gasped the royal army, who was all out of breath. "'This is quite sudden,' said the scarecrow. "'But please go and bar all the doors and windows of the palace while I show this pumpkinhead how to throw a quoit.' The soldier hastened to do this, while Tip, 
who had arrived at his heels, remained in the courtyard to look at the scarecrow with wondering eyes. His Majesty continued to throw the quoits as coolly as if no danger threatened his throne. But the pumpkin head, having caught sight of Tip, ambled toward the boy as fast as his wooden legs would go. Good afternoon, noble parent, he cried delightedly. I'm glad to see you are here. That terrible sawhorse ran away with me. I suspected it, said Tip. Did you get hurt? Are you cracked at all? No, I arrived safely, answered Jack. And his majesty has been very kind indeed to me. At this moment the soldier with the green whiskers returned, and the scarecrow asked, By the way, who has conquered me? A regiment of girls gathered from the four corners of the land of Oz, replied the soldier, still pale with fear. But where was my standing army at the time? inquired his majesty, looking at the soldier gravely. Your standing army was running, answered the fellow honestly, for no man could face the terrible weapons of the invaders. Well, said the scarecrow after a moment's thought, I don't mind the loss of my throne. For it's a tiresome job to rule over the Emerald City, and this crown is so heavy that it makes my head ache. But I hope the conquerors have no intention of injuring me just because I happen to be the king. I heard them say, remarked Tip with some hesitation, that they intended to make a rag carpet of your outside and, and stuff their sofa cushions with your inside. Then I am really in danger, declared His Majesty positively. And it will be wise for me to consider a means to escape. Where can you go? asked Jack Pumpkinhead. Why, my friend the Tin Woodman, who rules over the Winkies and calls himself their emperor, was the answer. I am sure he will protect me. Tip was looking out the window. The palace is surrounded by the enemy, said he. It is too late to escape. They would soon tear you to pieces. The scarecrow sighed. In an emergency, he announced, it is always a good thing to pause and reflect. Please excuse me while I pause and reflect. But we also are in danger, said the pumpkin head anxiously. If any of these girls understand cooking, my end is not far off. Nonsense, exclaimed the scarecrow. They are too busy to cook, even if they know how. But should I remain here a prisoner for any length of time, protested Jack, I am liable to spoil. Ah, then you would not be fit to associate with, returned the scarecrow. The matter is more serious than I suspected. You, said the pumpkin head gloomily, are liable to live for many years. My life is necessarily short, so I must take advantage of the few days that remain to me. There, there, don't worry, answered the scarecrow soothingly. If you'll keep quiet long enough for me to think, I'll try to find some way for us all to escape. So the others waited in patient silence while the scarecrow walked to a corner and stood with his face to the wall for a good five minutes. At the end of that time, he faced them with a more cheerful expression upon his painted face. Where is the sawhorse you rode here? he asked the pumpkin head. Why, I said he was a jewel, and so your man locked him up in the royal treasury, said Jack. It was the only place I could think of, your majesty, added the soldier, fearing he had made a blunder. 
It pleases me very much, said the scarecrow. Has the animal been fed? Oh, yes, I gave him a heaping bag of sawdust. Excellent, cried the scarecrow. Bring the horse here at once. The soldier hastened away, and presently they heard the clattering of the horse's wooden legs upon the pavement as he was led into the courtyard. His Majesty regarded the steed critically. He doesn't seem especially graceful, he remarked musingly, but I suppose he can run? He can indeed, said Tip, gazing upon the sawhorse admiringly. Then, bearing us upon his back, he must make a dash through the ranks of the rebels and carry us to my friend the Tin Woodman, announced the Scarecrow. He can't carry four, objected Tip. No, but he may be induced to carry three, said His Majesty. I shall therefore leave my royal army behind, for from the ease with which he was conquered, I have little confidence in his powers. Still, he can run, declared Tip laughingly. I expected this blow, said the soldier sulkily, but I can bear it. I shall disguise myself by cutting off my lovely green whiskers, and, after all, it is no more dangerous to face those reckless girls than to ride this fiery, untamed wooden horse. Perhaps you are right, observed His Majesty, but for my part, not being a soldier, I am fond of danger. Now, my boy, you must mount first. And please sit as close to the horse's neck as possible. Tip climbed quickly to his place, and the soldier and the scarecrow managed to hoist the pumpkin head to a seat just behind him. There remained so little space for the king that he was liable to fall off as soon as the horse started. Fetch a clothesline, said the king to his army, and tie us all together. Then, if one falls off, we will all fall off. And while the soldier was gone for the clothesline, his majesty continued. It is well for me to be careful, for my very existence is in danger. I have to be as careful as you do, said Jack. Not exactly, replied the scarecrow, for if anything happened to me, that would be the end of me, but if anything were to happen to you, they could use you for seed. The soldier now returned with a long line, and tied all three firmly together. Also lashing them to the body of the sawhorse, so there seemed little danger of their tumbling off. Now throw open the gates, commanded the scarecrow, and we will make a dash to liberty or to death. The courtyard in which they were standing was located in the center of the great palace, which surrounded it on all sides. But in one place a passage led to an outer gateway, which the soldier had barred by the order of his sovereign. It was through this gateway his majesty proposed to escape, and the royal army now led the sawhorse along the passage and unbarred the gate, which swung backward with a loud crash. Now, said Tip to the horse, you must save us all. Run as fast as you can for the gate of the city, and don't let anything stop you. All right, answered the sawhorse gruffly, and dashed away so suddenly that Tip had to gasp for breath and hold firmly to the post he had driven into the creature's neck. Several of the girls who stood outside guarding the palace were knocked over by the sawhorse's mad rush. Others ran screaming out of the way, and only one or two jabbed their knitting needles frantically at the escaping prisoners. Tip got one small prick on his left arm, which smarted for an hour afterward, but the needles had no effect upon the scarecrow or Jack Pumpkinhead, who never even suspected they were being prodded. As for the sawhorse, 
he made a wonderful record upsetting a fruit cart, overturning several meek-looking men, and finally bowling over the new guardian of the gate, a fussy little fat woman appointed by General Ginger. Nor did the impetuous charger stop then. Once outside the walls of the Emerald City, he dashed along the road to the west with fast and violent leaps that shook the breath out of the boy and filled the scarecrow with wonder. Jack had ridden at this mad rate once before, so he devoted every effort to holding, with both hands, his pumpkin head upon its stick, enduring meantime the dreadful jolting with the courage of a philosopher. "'Slow him up! Slow him up!' shouted the scarecrow. "'My straw is all shaking down into my legs!' But Tip had no breath to speak, so the sawhorse continued his wild career, unchecked and with unabated speed." Presently they came to the banks of a wide river, and without a pause the wooden steed gave one final leap and launched them all in mid-air. A second later they were rolling, splashing, and bobbing about in the water, the horse struggling frantically to find a rest for its feet, and its riders being first plunged beneath the rapid current, and then floating upon the surface like corks. End chapter 9 And the escape was made. Yeah. There was, you have it. That was pretty exciting. Yeah. That's but. what I'm telling you. You'll love Oz. There's chases. There's there's Danger. Armies. Armies what? and magic and nations. Yeah. Golems and, you know. Oh, yeah. The sawhorse alone is worth the price of admission. Yeah. And he eats sawdust, so that's kind of like cannibalism. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> but it's it's a fun, cutesy thing. Of course a sawhorse would eat sawdust. He has to replenish his... Woodiness. His woodiness. Right. So I'm surprised he eats. Pump Jack Pumpkinhead doesn't eat. Scarecrow doesn't eat. The Tin Woodsman I don't think eats. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, I don't know. Um <laughs> oh Foxfire named it. Well, I told everybody Tennessee was doing his post post dump yeah. run. And uh, Foxfire called it poop zoomies, so no. that's that's good. So because Tennessee, <laughs> much like our late Kitty Switch, uh, every time they uh, make a deuce, they go flying through the house like you know it just propelled them with great yeah. speed. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I like the term the zoomies, but it's here to stay. It's Jackson Galaxy approved, so. Oh, there you I go. I should like it, but so. Uh looks like yeah, I guess we should maybe take a break. Um and uh we can um uh let me see. I'll uh I'll give everybody a, a cream of wheat commercial and <laughs> play a couple promos and we'll uh we'll come back nice. for the reveal of kiddo. Does that sound good? Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Here we go.
that we have it every day. We sing this song, it will make us strong, and it makes us shout, hooray! It's good for growing babies and grown-ups too to eat. For all the family's breakfast, you can see cream of wheat. Uh, do you smell a break coming up? Yeah. yeah. So do you. from this enchanted lamp. What are your three wishes? Oh gosh, I just wish that Fairy Lights for Fairy Nights could keep bringing quality original content to the internet even during a pandemic. <laughs> you don't have to waste a wish for that. You can just go to patreon.com slash fairy lights and give what you can. Any little bit helps. Well, you got it, Genie. Now, let's talk about my army of unicorns and my forever home kitten sanctuary. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Kenny Pick, and you're listening to Radio for Humans. All the humanities. Radioforhumans.com. Hi, this is Jody Hamilton of the From the Bunker podcast, and you can hear our show Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Radio for Humans. for fairy nights it's time for your bedtime story brought to you by me the Suze. also brought to you by me zelda put your pjs on and sit down for a soothing bedtime story it's not just the devil in the details what else is lurking fairy lights for fairy nights <laughs> there might be. I think he's gonna kill me. He might kill you. He won't kill me. Do you want to switch places? <laughs> no, it's okay. I can work on SB Studio and you can be out here if you want. I'm just being silly. He loves me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was a real cuddle monkey when we came back from the uh, the second city today. Yeah. I bought another yeah, chair, we but don't, it's not for him. We don't have Emerald City. <laughs> no. We have a second city. Yeah. By the way, we you should see how much pollen we have here. Ugh. It was it, it like it was pouring off of the trash cans in the car like yellow sludge after it rained. So Oh, the kiddo reveal. Oh <laughs> Kiddo visits right. Oz. Kiddo visits Oz. Look at that. Oh, 
That is terrific. He his own pumpkin heads. Oh, that he likes is, that. That is magnificent, uh, Foxfire. Thank you. That's adorable. I was hoping he would visit us, but I didn't know what he'd do or what would happen. Well, I, and it's so cool. The Jack Pumpkinhead is uh, there too. So, mm -hmm. and he's uh, he's uh, helping kiddo fit in. <laughs> yep. So three pumpkin heads on uh, on kiddo. That's adorable. Yeah. So I will straight away start uh, the coloration process for the show. <laughs> look, I look mm. forward to that. That's fun. So. I should have that done by the time we uh, figure out what we're doing next. Should we, um, you want to go Greek? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, uh, love that. Yeah. So we've got, uh, Pandora and Prometheus, correct? Yeah. Let's open that box. No, oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't mean to steal your fire, but. Well, do you want to talk about what Pandora <laughs> means to you? Well, uh, Pandora's, you know, uh, to me, it's all—it's kind of like the same kind of thing as, you know, uh, again, demonizing women for wanting to, you know, wanting knowledge, like, you know, Eve in the Garden of Eden, yeah. the Tree of Knowledge yeah. kind of thing. It's like... yeah. Larry did he screw up everything for us men again. <sighs> so that that's kind of what I get from Pandora. And of course, you know, and then Prometheus, you know, stealing fire from the gods. And mm -hmm. a very underrated Ridley Scott film. Yeah. So Your favorites. And a really cool Grant Morrison character from uh that fought the Justice League. Yeah. Um but yeah, Prometheus. You know, the, the you know both stories kind of stand on their own. But the, I think the most, uh, uh, you know, again, Pandora. You know, all oh, you women's, why are you women's messing things up for us men's? You know, yeah. It's just kind of that you know ignorant patriarchy. Well, everything was perfect and wonderful till some women's opened the box. Or ate the apple. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But anyway, well, I guess uh, on that note, we'll just go ahead and yeah. uh, we'll run it. So, uh, here it is. Prometheus and Pandora. Okay. Prometheus and Pandora from A Book of Myths by Gene Lang. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prometheus and Pandora From A Book of Myths Those who are interested in watching the mental development of a child must have noted that when the baby has learned to speak, even a little, it begins to show its growing intelligence by asking questions. What is this it would seem at first to ask with regard to simple things that, to it, are still mysteries? Soon it arrives at the more far-reaching inquiries. Why is this so? How did this happen? And, as the child's mental growth continues, the painstaking and conscientious parent or guardian is many times faced by questions which lack of knowledge or a sensitive honesty prevents him from answering either with assurance or with ingenuity. As with the child, so it has ever been with the human race. Man has always come into the world asking, how? 
why, what. And so the Hebrew, the Greek, the Maori, the Australian blackfellow, the Norseman, in a word, each race of mankind, has formed for itself an explanation of existence, an answer to the questions of the groping child mind. Who made the world? What is God? What made a God think of fire and air and water? Why am I, I? Into the explanation of creation and existence given by the Greeks come the stories of Prometheus and of Pandora. The world, as first it was to the Greeks, was such a world as the one of which we read in the book of Genesis, without form and void. It was a sunless world, in which land, air, and sea were mixed up together, and over which reigned a deity called Chaos. With him ruled the goddess of night, and their son was Erebus, god of darkness. When the two beautiful children of Erebus, light and day, had flooded formless space with their radiance, Eros, the god of love, was born. And light and day and love, working together, turned discord into harmony, and made the earth, the sea, and the sky into one perfect whole. A giant race, a race of titans, in time populated this newly made earth. And of these, one of the mightiest was Prometheus. To him, and to his brother Epimetheus, was entrusted by Eros the distribution of the gifts of faculties and of instincts to all the living creatures in the world, and the task of making a creature lower than the gods, something less great than the titans, yet, in knowledge and in understanding, infinitely higher than the beasts and birds and fishes. At the hands of the titan brothers, birds, beasts, and fishes had fared handsomely. They were titanic in their generosity, and so prodigal had they been in their gifts that when they would fain have carried out the commands of Eros, they found that nothing was left for the equipment of this being to be called man. Yet, nothing daunted, Prometheus took some clay from the ground at his feet, moistened it with water, and fashioned it into an image in form like the gods. Into its nostrils, Eros breathed the spirit of life. Pallas Athena endowed it with a soul, and the first man looked wonderingly round on the earth that was to be his heritage. Prometheus, proud of the beautiful thing of his own creation, would fain have given man a worthy gift, but no gift remained for him. He was naked, unprotected, more helpless than any of the beasts of the field, more to be pitied than any of them, in that he had a soul to suffer. Surely Zeus the all-powerful, ruler of Olympus, would have compassion on man. But Prometheus looked to Zeus in vain. Compassion he had none. Then, in infinite pity, Prometheus bethought himself of a power belonging to the gods alone, and unshared by any living creature on the earth. We shall give fire to the man whom we have made, he said to Epimetheus. To Epimetheus this seemed an impossibility, but to Prometheus nothing was impossible. He bided his time, and, unseen by the gods, he made his way into Olympus, lighted a hollow torch with a spark from the chariot of the sun, and hastened back to earth with this royal gift to man. Assuredly, no other gift could have brought him more completely the empire that has since been his. No longer did he tremble and cower in the darkness of caves when Zeus hurled his lightnings across the sky. No more did he dread the animals that hunted him and drove him in terror before them. Armed with fire, the beasts became his vassals. With fire he forged weapons, 
defied the frost and cold, coined money, made implements for tillage, introduced the arts, and was able to destroy as well as to create. From his throne on Olympus, Zeus looked down on the earth and saw with wonder airy columns of blue-gray smoke that curled upwards to the sky. He watched more closely and realized with terrible wrath that the moving flowers of red and gold that he saw in that land that the Titans shared with men came from fire that had hitherto been the gods' own sacred power. Speedily, he assembled a council of the gods to mete out to Prometheus a punishment fit for the blasphemous daring of his crime. This council decided at length to create a thing that should forevermore charm the souls and hearts of men, and yet, forevermore, be man's undoing. To Vulcan, god of fire, whose province Prometheus had insulted, was given the work of fashioning out of clay and water the creature by which the honor of the gods was to be avenged. The lame Vulcan, says Hesiod, poet of Greek mythology, formed out of the earth an image resembling a chaste virgin. Pallas Athena, of the blue eyes, hastened to ornament her and to robe her in a white tunic. She dressed on the crown of her head a long veil, skillfully fashioned and admirable to see. She crowned her forehead with graceful garlands of newly opened flowers and a golden diadem that the lame Vulcan, the illustrious god, had made with his own hands to please the puissant Jove. On this crown, Vulcan had chiseled the innumerable animals that the continents and the sea nourish in their bosoms, all endowed with a marvelous grace, and apparently alive. When he had finally completed, instead of some useful work, this illustrious masterpiece, he brought into the assembly this virgin, proud of the ornaments with which she had been decked by the blue-eyed goddess, daughter of a powerful sire. To this beautiful creature, destined by the gods to be man's destroyer, each of them gave a gift. From Aphrodite, she got beauty. From Apollo, music. From Hermes, the gift of a winning tongue. And when all that great company in Olympus had bestowed their gifts, they named the woman Pandora, gifted by all the gods. Thus equipped for victory, Pandora was led by Hermes to the world that was thenceforward to be her home. As a gift from the gods, she was presented to Prometheus. But Prometheus, gazing in wonder at the violet-blue eyes bestowed by Aphrodite, that looked wonderingly back into his own as if they were indeed as innocent as two violets wet with the morning dew, hardened his great heart and would have none of her. As a hero, a worthy descendant of Titans, said in later years, Timeo Danaeus et Donna Ferentis, I fear the Greeks, even when they bring gifts. In Prometheus, the greatly daring, knowing that he merited the anger of the gods, saw treachery in a gift so outwardly perfect. Not only would he not accept this exquisite creature for his own, but he hastened to caution his brother also to refuse her. But well were they named Prometheus, forethought, and Epimetheus, afterthought. For Epimetheus, it was enough to look at this peerless woman, sent from the gods, for him to love her and to believe in her utterly, she was the fairest thing on earth, worthy indeed of the deathless gods who had created her. Perfect, too, was the happiness that she brought with her to Epimetheus. Before her coming, as he well knew now, the fair world had been incomplete. Since she came, the fragrant flowers had grown more sweet for him, the song of the birds more full of melody. 
he found new life in Pandora, and marveled how his brother could ever have fancied that she could bring to the world aught but peace and joyousness. Now, when the gods had entrusted to the Titan brothers the endowment of all living things upon the earth, they had been careful to withhold everything that might bring into the world pain, sickness, anxiety, bitterness of heart, remorse, or soul-crushing sorrow. All these hurtful things were imprisoned in a coffer, which was given into the care of the trusty Epimetheus. To Pandora, the world into which she came was all fresh, all new, quite full of unexpected joys and delightful surprises. It was a world of mystery, but mystery of which her great, adoring, simple titan held the golden key. When she saw the coffer, which never was opened, what then more natural than that she should ask Epimetheus what it contained? But the contents were known only to the gods. Epimetheus was unable to answer. Day by day, the curiosity of Pandora increased. To her, the gods had never given anything but good. Surely there must be here gifts more precious still. What if the Olympians had destined her to be the one to open the casket, and had sent her to earth in order that she might bestow on this dear world, on the men who lived on it, and on her own magnificent titan, happiness and blessings, which only the minds of the gods could have conceived. Thus did there come a day when Pandora, unconscious instrument in the hands of a vengeful Olympian, in all faith and with the courage that is born of faith and of love, opened the lid of the prison house of evil. And as from coffers in the old Egyptian tombs, the live plague can still rush forth and slay. The long-imprisoned evils rushed forth upon the fair earth and on the human beings who lived on it. Malignant, ruthless, fierce, treacherous, and cruel. Poisoning, slaying, devouring. Plague and pestilence and murder. Envy and malice and revenge. And all viciousness. An ugly wolf pack indeed was that one let loose by Pandora. Terror, doubt, misery had all rushed straightway to attack her heart, while the evils of which she had never dreamed stung mind and soul into dismay and horror, when, by hastily shutting the lid of the coffer, she tried to undo the evil she had done. And lo, she found that the gods had imprisoned one good gift only in this inferno of horrors and of ugliness. In the world, there had never been any need of hope. What work was there for hope to do where all was perfect? and where each creature possessed the desire of body and of heart. Therefore hope was thrust into the chest that held the evils, a star in a black night, a lily growing on a dung heap. And as Pandora, white-lipped and trembling, looked into the otherwise empty box, courage came back to her heart, and Epimetheus let fall to his side the arm that would have slain the woman of his love, because there came to him like a draught of wine to a warrior spent in battle an imperial vision of the sons of men through all the eons to come, combating all evils of body and of soul, going on conquering and to conquer. Thus, saved by hope, the titan and the woman faced the future, and for them the vengeance of the gods was stayed. Yet I argue not against heaven's hand or will, nor bait a jot of heart or hope, but still bear up and steer right onward. So spoke Milton, the blind titan of the 17th century. And Shakespeare says, True hope is swift, and flies with swallows' wings. Kings it makes gods, 
and meaner creatures kings. Upon the earth, and on the children of men who were as gods in their knowledge and mastery of the force of fire, Jupiter had had his revenge. For Prometheus, he reserved another punishment. He, the greatly daring, once the dear friend and companion of Zeus himself, was chained to a rock on Mount Caucasus by the vindictive deity. There, on a dizzying height, his body thrust against the sun-baked rock. Prometheus had to endure the torment of having a foul-beaked vulture tear out his liver, as though he were a piece of carrion lying on the mountainside. All day, while the sun mercilessly smote him and the blue sky turned from red to black before his pain-racked eyes, the torture went on. Each night, when the filthy bird of prey that worked the will of the gods spread its dark wings and flew back to its airy, the titan endured the cruel mercy of having his body grow whole once more. But with daybreak there came again the silent shadow, the smell of the unclean thing, and again, with fierce beak and talons, the vulture greedily began its work. Thirty thousand years was the time of his sentence, and yet Prometheus knew that at any moment he could have brought his torment to an end. A secret was his, a mighty secret, the revelation of which would have brought him the mercy of Zeus, and have reinstated him in the favor of the all-powerful god. Yet did he prefer to endure his agonies, rather than to free himself by bowing to the desires of a tyrant who had caused man to be made, yet denied to man those gifts that made him nobler than the beasts and raised him almost to the heights of the Olympians. Thus for him the weary centuries dragged by, in suffering that knew no respite, in endurance that the gods might have ended. Prometheus had brought an imperial gift to the men that he had made, and imperially he paid the penalty. Three thousand years of sleep unsheltered hours, and moments I divided by keen pangs, till they seemed years, torture and solitude, scorn and despair. These are mine empire, more glorious far than that which thou surveyest from thine unenvied throne, O mighty God. Almighty, had I deigned to share the shame of thine ill tyranny, and hung not here, nailed to this wall of eagle-baffling mountain, black, wintry, dead, unmeasured, without herb, insect, or beast, or shape, or sound of life. Ah, me, alas, pain, pain ever, forever. Shelley Titan, to whose immortal eyes the sufferings of mortality, seen in their sad reality, were not as things that gods despise. What was thy pity's recompense? A silent suffering and intense? The rock, the vulture, and the chain. All that the proud can feel of pain. The agony they do not show. The suffocating sense of woe. Which speaks but in its loneliness. And then is jealous, lest the sky should have a listener. Nor will sigh until its voice is echoless. Byron. Yet I am still Prometheus wiser grown by years of solitude, that holds apart the past and future, giving the soul room to search into itself and long commune with this eternal silence. More a god in my long suffering and strength to meet with equal front the direst shafts of fate than thou in thy faint-hearted despotism. Therefore, great heart, bear up. Thou art but type of what all lofty spirits endure that fain would win men back to strength and peace through love. Each hath his lonely peak, and on each heart envy, 
or scorn, or hatred, tears lifelong with vulture beak. Yet the high soul is left, and faith, which is but hope grown wise, and love and patience, which at last shall overcome. Lowell End of Prometheus and Pandora From A Book of Myths by Jean Lang Recorded by Matthew McClellan I did not know that Prometheus was supposed to be the bride, or I'm sorry, that Pandora was supposed to be the bride of Prometheus, but I did like that little jab. It's like, I don't trust the Greeks even when they're giving me a present, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah. it's that whole uh, Trojan horse thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. so. Um, yeah, I so, so. Th- that was that was interesting. It was uh, well-read and well-written and everything, but, uh, you know, it was it was a little morose. Yeah. You know. For sure. Um, but thanks again uh, to um, Foxfire for the gorgeous uh, illustration for tonight's show. I had fun uh, adding some color to it. So. Um, yeah. I'm glad it was an Oz, too, so I could do I could do green and yellow for the, for the backgrounds, you know. And thank you for adding color. Yeah. It just brings, brings another dimension to it. But, yeah. It's just so great that, you know, well, Black Spire can draw like that. Yeah, and as small as we would make it uh, for a tile image on mm-hmm. on the show, it you know, uh, it would be, you know, this the, the color just makes it pop out, you know, so people can identify it a little easier and, and might be compelled to click on it and make it bigger. Oh, so. definitely. But, yeah. And it's so. great that as it posted up on his wall and... You know, feel free to, I'm going to download and compress and export and post the podcast on SoundCloud. But once I do that, I'll post it back on Discord. Feel free to post it anywhere. And then the picture will be there. And um, you can share the picture as well as the podcast to your friends or anything like that. So, yeah. But yeah, it's it's great to... We're using our imagination. And basically, the story of Pandora is the birth of the concept of hope. So, true. Because they true. said, you know, you don't, you didn't have need for hope before. Because things weren't so horrible. Then they got yeah. horrible. <laughs> well, they said something about a flower growing out of a dung heap, too. So, you know, yeah. that kind of yeah. um, thing that, you know, there, there was still a gift uh, among the horrors, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I do like the idea of the horrors falling out of the box and all the horrible, scary, creepy things. We all like creepy things, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like you do. Never trust Greeks bearing gifts. That's the phrase. Thank you, Foxfire. So, yeah. Um, Foxfire knows all of our, our uh, ancient and classical information and stories, which is awesome. Yes, yeah. So Well-versed. And, um, so, uh, let's see, we only, uh, wow, we've only played three stories tonight, uh, mm-hmm. so far. Well, we did two, two chapters of Oz, so that's good. And, um, we could, um, uh, go to, uh, well, the Golden Goose is in orange, is that, um, 
Is that one that you've already done? Sure. No. No, yeah. Not at all. Goose? We did the so. Goose Girl, I think. Goose Girl. But yeah. not Yeah, the Goose Girl, but not the Golden Goose. Yeah. Not the um Not the old mother, old woman that lives in the shoe either. That's interesting. I would like to know if there's more information on that in the story, but um, do you would do you want uh, the old woman who lived in a shoe? And if we have time, we'll do the golden goose. Sure, let's do that. All right. So, okay, here's uh, the old woman who lived in a shoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christiane Levesque from Two Girls on a Podcast at twogirlsonapodcast.libsyn.com. The Woman Who Lived in the Shoe from Mother Goose in Prose by L. Frank Baum. The Woman Who Lived in a Shoe. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread, and whipped them all soundly, and sent them to bed. A long time ago there lived a woman who had four daughters, and these in time grew up and married and went to live in different parts of the country. And the woman, after that, lived all alone, and said to herself, I have done my duty to the world, and now shall rest quietly for the balance of my life. When one has raised a family of four children, and has married them all happily, she is surely entitled to pass her remaining days in peace and comfort. She lived in a peculiar little house that looked something like this picture. It was not like most of the houses you see, but the old woman had it built herself and liked it, and so it did not matter to her how odd it was. It stood upon the top of a little hill, and there was a garden at the back, and had a pretty green lawn in front with white gravel paths and many beds of bright-colored flowers. The old woman was very happy and contented there, until one day she received a letter saying that her daughter Hannah was dead and had sent her family of five children to their grandmother to be taken care of. This misfortune ruined all the old woman's dreams of quiet, but the next day the children arrived, three boys and two girls, and she made the best of it and gave them the beds her own daughters had once occupied, and her own cot as well and she made a bed for herself on the parlor sofa. The youngsters were like all other children and got into mischief once in a while, but the old woman had much experience with children and managed to keep them in order very well, while they quickly learned to obey her, and generally did as they were bid. But scarcely had she succeeded in getting them settled in their new home when Margaret, another of her daughters, died, and sent four more children to her mother to be taken care of. The old woman scarcely knew where to keep this new flock that had come to her fold, for the house was already full. But she thought the matter over, and finally decided she must build an addition to her house. So she hired a carpenter, and built what is called a lean-to at the right of her cottage, making it just big enough to accommodate the four new members of her family. When it was completed, her house looked very much like it does in this picture. She put four little cots in her new part of the house, and then she sighed contentedly and said, Now all the babies are taken care of and will be comfortable until they grow up. Of course, it was much more difficult to manage nine small children than five, and they often led each other into mischief, so that the flower beds began to be trampled upon, and the green grass to be worn under the constant tread of little feet, and the furniture to show a good many scratches and bruises. 
but the old woman continued to look after them as well as she was able until sarah her third daughter also died and three more children were sent to their grandmother to be brought up the old woman was nearly distracted when she heard of this new addition to her family but she did not give way to despair she sent for the carpenter again and had him built another addition to her house as the picture shows then she put three new cots in the new part for the babies to sleep in and when they arrived they were just as cosy and comfortable as peas in a pod the grandmother was a lively old woman for one of her years but she found her time now fully occupied in cooking the meals for her twelve small grandchildren and mending their clothes and washing their faces and undressing them at night and dressing them in the morning there was just a dozen of babies now and when you consider they were about the same age you will realize what a large family the old woman had and how fully her time was occupied in caring for them all and now to make the matter worse her fourth daughter who had been named abigail suddenly took sick and died and she also had four small children that must be cared for in some way the old woman having taken the other twelve could not well refuse to adopt these little orphans also i may as well have sixteen as a dozen she said with a sigh they will drive me crazy some day anyhow so a few more will not matter at all once more she sent for the carpenter and bade him build a third addition to the house and when it was completed she added four more cots to the dozen that were already in use the house presented a very queer appearance now but she did not mind that so long as the babies were comfortable i shall not have to build again she said and that is one satisfaction i have now no more daughters to die and leave me their children and therefore i must make up my mind to do the best i can with the sixteen that have already been inflicted upon me in my old age it was not long before all the grass about the house was trodden down and the white gravel of the walks all thrown at the birds and the flower beds trampled into shapeless masses by thirty-two little feet that ran about from morn till night but the old woman did not complain at this her time was too much taken up with the babies for her to miss the grass and the flowers it cost so much money to clothe them that she decided to dress them all alike so that they looked like the children of a regular orphan asylum and it cost so much to feed them that she was obliged to give them the plainest food so there was bread and milk for breakfast and milk and bread for dinner and bread and broth for supper but it was a good and wholesome diet and the children thrived and grew fat upon it one day a stranger came along the road and when he saw the old woman's house he began to laugh what are you laughing at sir asked the grandmother who was sitting upon her doorstep engaged in mending sixteen pairs of stockings at your house the stranger replied it looks for all the world like a big shoe a shoe she said in surprise why yes the chimneys are the shoe straps and the steps are the heel and all those additions make up the foot of the shoe never mind said the woman it may be a shoe but it is full of babies and that makes it differ from most other shoes but the stranger went on to the village and told all he met that he had seen an old woman who lived in a shoe and soon people came from all parts of the country to look at the queer house and they usually went away laughing the old woman did not mind this at all she was too busy to be angry some of the children were always getting bumped heads or bruised shins or falling down and hurting themselves and these had to be comforted and some were naughty and had to be whipped and some were dirty and had to be washed and some were good and had to be kissed 
It was Grandma do this and Grandma do that from morning to night, so that the poor grandmother was nearly distracted. The only peace she ever got was when they were all safely tucked in their little cots and were sound asleep. For then, at least, she was free from worry and had a chance to gather her scattered wits. There are so many children, she said one day to the baker man, that I often really don't know what to do. If they were mine, ma'am, he replied, I'd send them to the poorhouse, or else they'd send me to the madhouse. Some of the children heard him say this, and they resolved to play him a trick in return for his ill-natured speech. The baker man came every day to the shoe house and brought two great baskets of bread in his arms for the children to eat with their milk and their broth. So one day, when the old woman had gone to town to buy shoes, the children all painted their faces to look as Indians do when they are on the warpath, and they caught the roosters and the turkey cock and pulled feathers from their tails to stick in their hair. And then the boys made wooden tomahawks for the girls and bows and arrows for their own use. And then all sixteen went out and hid in the bushes near the top of the hill. By and by, the baker man came slowly up the path with a basket of bread on either arm. And just as he reached the bushes, there sounded in his ears the most unearthly war hoop. Then a flight of arrows came from the bushes, and although they were blunt and could do him no harm, they rattled all over his body, and one hit his nose and another his chin, while several stuck fast in the loaves of bread. Altogether, the baker man was terribly frightened, and when all the sixteen small Indians rushed from the bushes and flourished their tomahawks, he took to his heels and ran down the hill as fast as he could go. When the grandmother returned, she asked, Where is the bread for your supper? The children looked at one another in surprise, for they had forgotten all about the bread. And then one of them confessed and told her the whole story of how they had frightened the baker man for saying he would send them to the poorhouse. "'You are sixteen very naughty children,' exclaimed the old woman, "'and for punishment you must eat your broth without any bread, "'and afterwards each one shall have a sound whipping and be sent to bed.' Then all the children began to cry at once, and there was such an uproar that their grandmother had to put cotton in her ears that she might not lose her hearing." But she kept her promise, and made them eat their broth without any bread, for indeed there was no bread to give them. Then she stood them in a row and undressed them, and as she put the nightdress on each one, she gave it a sound whipping and sent it to bed. They cried some, of course, but they knew very well they deserved the punishment, and it was not long before all of them were sound asleep. They took care not to play any more tricks on the baker man, and as they grew older, they were naturally much better behaved. Before many years, the boys were old enough to work for the neighboring farmers, and that made the woman's family a good deal smaller. And then the girls grew up and married, and found homes of their own, so that all the children were in time well provided for. But not one of them forgot the kind grandmother who had taken such good care of them, and often they tell their children of the days when they lived with the old woman in a shoe and frightened the baker man almost into fits with their wooden tomahawks. End of The Woman Who Lived in a Shoe Yes, yes, yes. It's getting a little, I, I felt like it was getting a little Lord of Flies there for a bit. It might have been. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
the boys made tomahawks for the girls. And, <laughs> and then they went over to living on Long Island, took them out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so but there was a lot of there was a lot of whipping of children in there. <laughs> yeah, children got whipped. But yeah, the um the main thing was that um all their mothers, the woman had four daughters. The four yeah. daughters all died. Yeah. Cuz we didn't have advanced medicine then to help people and to keep them alive. Yeah, back then so, men used to live to the ripe old age of 25. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and women to the ripe old age of 35. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, and that's before they had wheels on their barrows. Yeah. So. Uh, but no, that was, you know, that was uh, pretty pretty true to it. I don't remember exactly the Baker thing saying, oh, yeah, you need to have child call Child Protective Services, you know. <laughs> um well, I was, you know, I, I knew that they would give more details, but yeah. yeah, she did. She had four children and she married them all off. Well, married them off, but then they died and she had to take all these grandchildren in. So, yeah. So, so there's no, uh, moralizing about birth control here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so let's see, we, we have a, we have 45 minutes left. Um, and, uh. Oh, we played the adventures of Sir Gareth most definitely, didn't we? Did we? I didn't think we did. I thought we I did. I think that, that was the se that was the little sequel to uh uh King Arthur. Okay, I, I, I don't remember. I'll, I'll just get that uh, get rid of that. That's fine. Yeah, that's really not too much in uh, too much of a fairy tale anyway. Yeah. Um so yeah, there's more so there's uh the Golden Goose and um, Mother Goose, uh, ma the Man in the Moon. Oh man, I want both. So, but we already talked about the Golden Goose, so I guess we should do that. Yeah. Um. Uh, so, so do uh, Man in the Moon. Is that what you're saying, or do Golden Goose? Do Golden Goose because we talked right. about it. All right. We well, don't want to tease it and yeah. then not do it. All right. This will be our last one of the evening. So, uh, okay. from Grimm, the Golden Goose, he pooped out golden nuggets. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Sherry Crowther. The Golden Goose Fairy Tales by the Brothers Grimm there was a man who had three sons, the youngest of whom was called Dumbling, and was despised, mocked, and sneered at on every occasion. It happened that the eldest wanted to go into the forest to hew wood, and before he went his mother gave him a beautiful sweet cake and a bottle of wine, in order that he might not suffer from hunger or thirst. When he entered the forest he met a little grey-haired old man, who bade him good day, and said, Do give me a piece of cake out of your pocket, and let me have a draught of your wine. I am so hungry and thirsty. But the clever son answered, If I give you my cake and wine, I shall have none for myself. Be off with you. And he left the little man standing, and went on. 
but when he began to hew down a tree, it was not long before he made a false stroke, and the axe cut him in the arm, so that he had to go home and have it bound up, and this was the little grey man's doing. After this the second son went into the forest, and his mother gave him, like the eldest, a cake and a bottle of wine. The little old grey man met him likewise, and asked him for a piece of cake and a drink of wine. But the second son, too, said sensibly enough, What I give you will be taken away from myself. Be off! And he left the little man standing and went on. His punishment, however, was not delayed. When he had made a few blows at the tree, he struck himself in the leg, so that he had to be carried home. Then Dumbling said, Father, do let me go and cut wood. The father answered, Your brothers have hurt themselves with it. Leave it alone. You do not understand anything about it. But Dumbling begged so long that at last he said, Just go, then. You will get wiser by hurting yourself. His mother gave him a cake made with water and baked in the cinders, and with it a bottle of sour beer. When he came to the forest, the little old grey man met him likewise, and greeting him said, Give me a piece of your cake, and a drink out of your bottle. I am hungry and thirsty. Dumbling answered, I have only cinder cake and sour beer. If that pleases you, we will sit down and eat. So they sat down, and when Dumbling pulled out his cinder cake, it was a fine sweet cake and the sour beer had become good wine. So they ate and drank, and after that the little man said, Since you have a good heart and are willing to divide what you have, I will give you good luck. There stands an old tree. Cut it down and you will find something at the roots. Then the little man took leave of him. Dumbling went and cut down the tree, and when it fell there was a goose, sitting in the roots with feathers of pure gold. He lifted her up, and taking her with him, went to an inn where he thought he would stay the night. Now the host had three daughters, who saw the goose and were curious to know what such a wonderful bird might be, and would have liked to have one of its golden feathers. The eldest thought, I shall soon find an opportunity of pulling out a feather and as soon as Dumbling had gone out, she seized the goose by the wing, but her finger and hand remained sticking fast to it. The second came soon afterwards, thinking only of how she might get a feather for herself, but she had scarcely touched her sister, then she was held fast. At last the third also came with a like intent, and the others screamed out, "'Keep away, for goodness sake, keep away!' but she did not understand why she was to keep away. The others are there, she thought. I may as well be there too, and ran to them. But as soon as she had touched her sister, she remained sticking fast to her. So they had to spend the night with the goose. The next morning, Dumbling took the goose under his arm and set out, without troubling himself about the three girls who were hanging on to it. They were obliged to run after him continually, now left, now right, wherever his legs took him. In the middle of the fields the parson met them, and when he saw the procession he said, 
"'For shame, you good-for-nothing girls! "'Why are you running across the fields after this young man? "'Is that seemly?' "'At the same time he seized the youngest by the hand "'in order to pull her away, "'but as soon as he touched her, he likewise stuck fast "'and was himself obliged to run behind. "'Before long the sexton came by and saw his master, "'the parson, running behind three girls.' He was astonished at this, and called out, "'Hi, your reverence, whither away so quickly? Do not forget that we have a christening to-day.' And running after him he took him by the sleeve, but was also held fast to it. Whilst the five were trotting thus one behind the other, two labourers came with their hoes from the fields. The parson called out to them, and begged that they would set him free, but they had scarcely touched the sexton when they were held fast, and now there were seven of them running behind Dumbling and the goose. Soon afterwards he came to a city, where a king ruled who had a daughter who was so serious that no one could make her laugh. So he had put forth a decree that whoever should be able to make her laugh should marry her. When Dumbling heard this, he went with his goose and all her train before the king's daughter, and as soon as she saw the seven people running on and on, one behind the other, she began to laugh quite loudly, and as if she would never stop. Thereupon Dumbling asked to have her for his wife, but the king did not like the son-in-law, and made all manner of excuses, and said he must first produce a man who could drink a cellar full of wine. Dumbling thought of the little grey man, who could certainly help him. So he went into the forest, and in the same place where he had felled the tree, he saw a man sitting, who had a very sorrowful face. Dumbling asked him what he was taking to heart so sorely, and he answered, I have such a great thirst, and cannot quench it. Cold water I cannot stand. A barrel of wine I have just emptied. "'but that to me is like a drop on a hot stone.' "'There, I can help you,' said Dumbling. "'Just come with me, and you shall be satisfied.' "'He led him into the king's cellar, "'and the man bent over the huge barrels, "'and drank and drank till his loins hurt, "'and before the day was out he had emptied all the barrels. "'Then Dumbling asked once more for his bride, "'but the king was vexed that such an ugly fellow,' whom every one called Dumbling, should take away his daughter, and he made a new condition. He must first find a man who could eat a whole mountain of bread. Dumbling did not think long, but went straight into the forest, where in the same place there sat a man, who was tying up his body with a strap, and making an awful face, and saying, I have eaten a whole oven roll of rolls, but what good is that when one has such a hunger as I? My stomach remains empty, and I must tie myself up, if I am not to die of hunger. At this Dumbling was glad, and said, Get up and come with me. You shall eat yourself full. He led him to the king's palace, where all the flour in the whole kingdom was collected, and from it he caused a huge mountain of bread to be baked. The man from the forest stood before it, began to eat, and by the end of one day the whole mountain had vanished. Then Dumbling for the third time asked for his bride, 
but the king again sought a way out and ordered a ship which could sail on land and water as soon as you come sailing back in it said he you shall have my daughter for wife dumbling went straight into the forest and there sat the little grey man to whom he had given his cake when he heard what dumbling wanted he said since you have given me to eat and to drink i will give you the ship and i do all this because you once were kind to me then he gave him the ship which could sail on land and water and when the king saw that he could no longer prevent him from having his daughter the wedding was celebrated and after the king's death dumbling inherited his kingdom and lived for a long time contentedly with his wife End of chapter 50 The Golden Goose And lived contentedly. Yeah. The only geese around here, they, 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 uh, they don't lay golden eggs, they leave green piles. Yeah. They certainly do. And I haven't seen them down at the, the river recently, but haven't seen their identifying green pellets recently either. You mean green logs. <laughs> yeah. Um, green logs of grass they leave around. Oh, my Lord. You know, and it's so funny. We have, uh, there's a little industrial area, you know, um, uh, a couple little industrial parks and offshoots uh, around 150th south of here. And there's this one, like, uh, I don't know. You can go buy bulk food there and stuff like that. I forget what the name of it is. Um, but uh, it's like, you know, for, you know, you go buy stuff there for restaurants and stuff, but it's also open to the public. And um, uh, they uh, and they just have two geese hanging out on the tree lawn oh, on yeah. this busy, uh, on the, this busy, 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 busy section of road. And mm-hmm. there's like a three, three foot wide, 12 foot long strip of grass that they're just chilling out on cars are zipping by trains are going around planes are flying overhead and these geese are just like we found our spot <laughs> they just wanted to hang out we're just like well, yeah, we're driving past and they're just sitting there i'm like they're huffing fumes you know there's a harley davidson <laughs> there's a harley davidson store down the road i mean yeah crazy literally <laughs> literally right off of 480 yeah so i don't know geese are weird but uh but yeah. no that was a, that was a fun little story you know a little bit more information the three sons and i of course they kept talking about wine and cake and i kept thinking uh old man herbert would you like to come inside for a cupcake and a glass of wine <laughs> <laughs> yep so, uh the thing it, of nightmares yeah so, um, but no, that was, that was fun. Uh, but we're yeah. right here. We are. We're at the end. We're at the end of, the we're at program. the end, but we did everything we were meant to do. We did two chapters of Oz, right? We did, um, lots yeah. of stories. Yeah. A few stories, yeah. you know, it was cool. We went Greek. Uh, we, we did some grin. We did some, uh, uh, what, who was that? Anderson, the little lady who lived in the shoe. Uh, no, I think it's um, Old Mother Hubbard. Oh, 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 Mother Goose, you mean? Mother Goose, yeah. Yeah. So, yep. well, there you go. 
All right, shall I shall I play our outro music? Yeah, let's take it out. All right, and everybody, uh, please uh, join us if you can tomorrow night on uh, It Came From Cleveland. Uh, yeah. We're going to be talking about Cloris Leachman and a bunch of cartoons and The Outer Limits and, of course, our Twilight Zone review. Be there. It will be magical, magical, magical. Talk to you later. For fairy nights. It's a blast bringing this stuff to you. Radioforhumans.com. Would you like to come inside for a cupcake and a glass of wine?